Welcome to church. We're glad you took some time out of your weekend to join us. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Revelation. There's this habit in the South where we put S's on stuff that don't need S's. And so the first biblical lesson I want to impart to you today is that it's called Revelation, singular. We don't need an S on Revelation. Some of you like to do that with Walmart. You're going to Walmarts. It's Walmart. It's singular. Not wall march. Just throwing that out there for some of you. Some of you are you feel attacked already. I'm not trying to attack you. I'm just trying to say don't put S's where S's don't need to be. Are you tracked with me? We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, this is an incredible story and it sets our message up today. We're in a series called Momentum Killers. We're looking at subtle and sneaky, sinful and sometimes just not helpful habits that if they go unchecked, they will quench our hunger for God, and they'll ultimately quench our love for each other as the people of God in this thing that God has created and established at Pentecost called the local church. And so in this summer series, we want to stir our affection for Jesus, and in doing so, hopefully stir our affection for each other with a renewed, vibrant faith. Growing up in church, one of the things that often frustrated me the most was watching and observing within myself a religious posture that I would take towards God on a Sunday that then turned into an irreligious life that I lived outside of that Sunday moment. Some of you maybe can experience this. I recognize, not just within the church, because a lot of times we get up and we're like, the church I grew up in, and then we start bashing everything about it. Uh, I think that's a terrible idea. There's a lot of good that came out of what you've learned, uh, whether it's by their example being good or by their example being bad. But what I recognized is that it wasn't everybody in church that was playing the religious game. It was me playing the religious game. And what I mean by that is I was compartmentalizing God into days and areas and spaces of my life. And I would give assent to God, but then I would leave those areas, spaces, and hours that were dedicated to God and live as if I was a practical atheist, as if God didn't exist. And all those things I said about God being faithful and trustworthy and powerful had no uh, implication or impact on the life that I was living outside of those religious moments. I hate that about myself. And so today I want to talk to you about this deadly momentum killer that's in a lot of our lives called indifference. We've talked about greed. Everybody got a greed accountability partner. We have now become the most generous people in all of Reedville or Sugar Tit or Greer or Five Forks or wherever you're at. Uh, because every one of us recognize that while we may have never gone to a pastor's office to repent of greed, we've all been greedy at times. Just ask your spouse or your neighbor or your friend. Uh, so we talked about greed in week one. We talked uh, last week. <clears throat> I can't remember what we talked about last week in the moment all of a sudden. I just sang and wasn't thinking, so I don't remember what we talked about last week. Neither do you. So, oh, we talked about dishonor. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, and dishonor is when we take something that is unique in our lives that God has given us and we treat it as if it were common. Five people actually remember my sermon, and I didn't remember my sermon in first service. And so today we're going to talk about indifference, and we're going to do it by looking at a case study of a church called the Church of Ephesus, and it's written to by the Apostle John from an island called Patmos, where he was uh, put in isolation in the 90 AD range because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. They boiled him alive because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus, and he survived it, and guess what he did? He kept talking about Jesus, so they're like, okay, we're going to put you on an island, and they would, uh, before this, here's what's cool, this is how I want to finish, okay, 
in ministry. Like if God's like, hey, Russ, uh, what is the most glorious way for my honor that you could finish? And I'm taking your recommendation, which God doesn't. But if, if he were... They, John was, before he was banished to the island of Patmos, he was so old that he couldn't walk anymore. So they would carry him in and seat him down in the church and he would teach everybody. And he lived in Ephesus before he was banned to the island of Patmos. And he likely took care of Jesus' mother until she passed. And she likely moved to Ephesus with John in the late 60 ADs. And they lived in Ephesus together. And so when he's writing in Revelation to the seven churches, and he writes to Ephesus, he's writing to a church that he spent years with, encouraging and living amongst as he gives this stuff. So, so if I were picking away, if I can't walk anymore, maybe I, you know, like the Lord takes my vision and I become like Yoda, uh, which is really what's on my mind, Star Wars, it always comes back to Jesus or Star Wars. But n- nonetheless, but if I, I were in that moment, I'd love for, to be able to be carried in and just be so filled with Scripture in my mind and so filled with the Spirit that even in my old age, even if I can't remember like my own name, I still remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2, like I, I, and, and just could go and continue to teach and be a blessing to others. So John writes to the church of Ephesus, let me get to the point, and this is what he says, verse 1, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus, this is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered that they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. And the church in Ephesus at this point in time in history was being ravaged with persecution. It was not an easy time to be Christian. It wasn't like professing Christ didn't come with a significant cost. Many of them lost their lives. Many of them starved in starvation. Many of them were isolated within their community. And so there's this commending letter. I mean, think about these good things that John is saying, that you discern between a teaching from the Word of God and a deceptive teaching from uh, a man that wants to manipulate you or a, a person that is deceived by Satan that wants to twist theology and doctrine to their benefit for their platform so that they have significance instead of giving that significance to Jesus. That's a good thing, last time I checked. So they examine the claims. They discover liars. They're discerning. They've patiently suffered along with the Apostle John without quitting. But, verse 4... I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Think about this. Your doctrine's great. Your ministries are effective. Your gatherings are organized. But there's something that was here that's missing. And it's a genuine affectionate love for Jesus. And not only is there a missing, genuine, affectionate love for Jesus in the lives of the people of this church individually, but there's a genuine, missing, affectionate love for each other. The doctrine's good. The ministry's good. But there's something off. Verse 5, look how far You have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place amongst the churches. Now, I love doing case studies. I started out as a history major in college. 
Um, and, and that's what I want to do. I don't know what you can get with a history degree in college except debt. But I was on the path to getting debt and figuring out if there was some castle, some Smithsonian, some place in Charleston, fingers crossed, that would let me walk around and pontificate daily about the history of what had happened in that place. Like That was my dream, goal, and ambition in life early on. And so I had that ambition, love history, and that carried over after I met Jesus because I love studying in church history. In fact, one of my favorite churches to study is in Charleston. It's one of the oldest churches in our country. It was St. Thomas's in downtown. It went through the Revolutionary War and the Civil War and colonization. It went through all kinds of stuff. They would get assigned pastors from Europe, and they wouldn't know who was getting off the boat until he got off the boat, and he said, I'm assigned to this church. One time they assigned a pastor that no one liked in the church, and this one fisherman said, if you get up to preach today, I will drag you by force out of the pulpit. This is recorded in their history annual, annuals. And so he gets up to preach because that's what preachers do. And the guy had brought, brought in under his coat a fishing net, and he threw the net over the guy and drug him out of the pulpit. So some of you think you've experienced church dysfunction. Well, has your preacher been netted and drug out in the middle of a service? Then it ain't that bad. It ain't that bad. It could, it could get Worse. Well, we get a lot of history and background on the church of Ephesus. In fact, they're mentioned all over the book of Acts. The church at Ephesus had a lot of good going for it. And when John, who was an apostle, actually lived there uh, until being banished to isolation on the island of Patmos, we get a lot of insight into it through the book of Acts and the letter to the Ephesians in First and Second Timothy. Ephesus was on the Aegean Sea in what is known as modern-day Turkey. I've got a map because some of you are like, where's Turkey? That's where it would have been right below Izmir. Uh, some of you are like, I don't know where any of that is. Well, I can't help you because we didn't expand it, okay? But <laughs> it's there. Um, on top of that, just to give you a picture of what it was like to live in Ephesus, here's what some property could have looked like. Uh, you had Greece just a little bit to the northwest of you. Uh, this was a beautiful place. It had major roads that were leading out of it, so you would have boats that would come in and resources that would come, and then they would be shipped off to the three major roads. There was a road from Ephesus that went all the way to Babylon. Uh, there was a road, I wrote this down somewhere so I could give you some really dorky facts that none of you need to know. Um, let me find it. Uh, there it is. Uh, there, was, uh, there was a road that ran east to Babylon. There was a road that ran north to, Smyr to Smyrna. That probably helps a lot of you. And there was one south to the Meander Valley. Now, Paul planted the church of Ephesus there on a visit. Acts chapter 18, verse 19 gives us the first insight into this church in Ephesus. They uh, stopped first at the port of Ephesus where Paul left the others behind. While he was there, he went into the synagogue to reason with the Jews. They asked him to stay. He doesn't stay, but there is evidence that there's this group of people that turned to Christ. They began to gather together with what they knew of Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And they gathered together until the next chapter, Acts chapter 19, Paul comes back sent by God to establish that church, spending two to three years there teaching and pastoring. We see that in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 10. Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. That's what Christianity was called, to, uh, was called by many that didn't know how to distinguish it or identify it. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So they rent a school and for the next several years and months, they gathered together in that school to learn the Bible, to teach it. The ministry 
took off. It was extremely effective. Acts 19 goes on to record that it was so effective that many people who practice uh, uh, mysterious arts and magic brought magic books and began to burn their magic books. We see that in Acts chapter 19, verses 18 to 20. So many were turning from their idols in the church of Ephesus during this tenure of Paul preaching there that the silversmiths who crafted the idols that they would use and worship in their houses were almost put out of business. We see that in Acts chapter 19, verses 26 to 41. This was a church that you and I would want to be a part of. It's a church that had a lot going on. It's a church where people were excited. People were focused on the gospel. People were about living the gospel out in the way that they lived their lives. And it was making an impact on their culture and their community around them. Ten years later, around A.D. 62, Paul wrote them a letter called Ephesians, commending their faith. In it, he called this church, uh, he called them a people that were devoted to the, wor- to the word, He said that they were organized for effective ministry. He said they were busy about proclaiming the gospel. And he commends them for being diverse, both Jewish and Gentile, which is what we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. So you've got a diverse church that's focused to the word, that's dedicated to the work of ministry, and that's busy in proclaiming the gospel to their city. This is a great church. In the mid-60 A.D.s, They apparently began drifting, so Paul wrote, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, a letter to his protege, Timothy, who was the pastor at the time in the 60 AD range of the church of Ephesus. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we read this. When I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus, speaking to Timothy, and stop those uh, whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussion of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations, which don't help people live a life of faith in God. Here's the way the church and the work of God often works through the church. You see an effective church, a focused church, that's making a difference in their community. Satan hates effective, focused churches. So then they begin to try to distract with meaningless arguments or bringing in extra worldly theology to add into the theology that is actually true and good. And so what you get is over-regulation. There's no freedom anymore. We're not walking in the leadership of the Spirit, but we now start walking under the leadership of a man. Men are fallible. We make mistakes. We screw up. Whenever that begins to happen, we begin to add in things for the man's ego instead of things that are glorifying to God. The church then gets distracted. They're not as effective. They become kind of mute within their voice and reasoning within the community. So the community overlooks them not as a place of hope, but as a place that they can just look past as that gathering that gets together and does those things on Sundays or specific days. But it really has no implication on all the days that are happening in the community around them. And then at the end of the day, the church then begins to struggle because they've had this thing called mission drift. This happens all the time. I know I'm talking fast, got a lot to go through today. I'm excited. (laughs) Beach camp's coming in about 24 hours, and I get to preach all week. I mean, you want to tee it up and say, have some fun? Give me Luke chapter 15 and a week with your students. We're going to have some fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. Nonetheless, these things, they only lead to meaningless speculations, which which don't help people live a life of faith in God. So we see some distraction And Timothy's job was to help them get back on mission. In the late 60 ADs, Ephesus became the likely home of John and Jesus' mother. Um, After we see that that, uh, Jesus call for John to take care of Jesus' mother, we can assume that wherever John went until the end of her life, they went together. So there's reason to believe that they would have been together in Ephesus. John wrote then, after being banished from Ephesus on the island of Patmos, what we're reading in Revelation 
uh, chapter 2, in the mid-90 ADs, more than likely. But the second century, though, so around 100 years after the writing of this letter in Revelation 2, the church of Ephesus was completely gone. Gone. Not, not even there anymore. I mean, it was post-Christian within a century. And, and the question then rises, what happened? What happened? Now, we, we get some extra biblical history from an early church father named Ignatius. Ignatius wrote a letter to them, and apparently there's some adherence to John's encouragement in Revelation 2, but it wasn't taken seriously. But we get the prescriptive problem. The problem that uh, caused the church of Ephesus to die off, to diminish, to go away, is in verse 4 of Revelation 2. I have this complaint against you. You don't love me. This is the problem. The problem's not doctrine. The problem's not practice. The problem is love. And for some of us, it's, it's silly. And this is why we've been talking about these subtle things, because you're like, I get it. I'm supposed to love him. And you've got this word love that's used in various ways. And on the same level that you love Andy's frozen custard, you love God, which is problematic. You don't, you don't understand that this love for God should be looking like in its relationship towards God should look, if it's expressed in any other way towards others, it my love for God should be so great that it looks like hate to everybody else because of how much I love Him. I prioritize Him to such an extent that everyone else could assume, based on that standard, that my vertical love for God is so significant and so great that it would be almost like, if that's the standard, I hate everything else around me. You don't love me. The natural byproduct of that is... If you don't love God, you naturally begin to overlook each other. And the second part of that verse is you don't love each other as you did at first. They didn't lose doctrine. They didn't lose religious ceremony. They lost their love for God. And inevitably, they lost their love for each other. Which is why I need to remind you that love is God's chief value. Love is God's chief value. Many of you have said stuff like, why does God let bad things happen to good people? Hmm. R.C. Sproul was famous for saying, there's only one person who was good that had a bad thing happen to him and he volunteered for it. But to play the question out a little bit further, you need to understand that the reason God allows for a time evil to exist on earth is because love is a choice we must choose to make. It's not something that can be forced upon us. I could get into the theology of time and why God created time and how he's sovereign over time and all those kinds of things, but my point is simply this. The reason God doesn't always intervene in every circumstance and in every part of evil that happens on earth is that God's ultimate desire is that in repentance, seeing the grace of God and the mercy of God and the patience of God, that you and I would, by the grace of God, have our eyes open to see him, recognize that our current path and choices and living are sinful and not to be accepted and will not be accepted before God, and in repentance we would turn to him open-handed, knowing that we don't deserve him, but understanding the grace of the gift that he's giving us, 
And in love, we would choose to worship and follow him. We would align our life with his word and by his spirit, we would be led into a new transformed way of living. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, we understand the chief value of God because he says at the end of his love chapter, three things will last forever. There's a lot of things that you are doing that are temporary. There's a lot of things that you are doing that are time-stamped. They will not last forever. There are three things that you can do that will be eternal, that will last, faith, hope, and And what's his greatest value? And the greatest of these is love. Love is God's chief value. God's greatest commandment is what? Love. Matthew chapter 22, they come and ask him what's the most important part of the law. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The overflow of that is that you love your... What's the problem in Revelation 2? They don't love God and they don't love their... See how this works? Now, just to give you a quick reminder, the person asking the question is basically saying, of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments that you gave the people of Israel and they were not a people and you were making them your people, which of these laws is most important? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with the heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the summation of the first five. (laughs) So he says, in summary, one to five are really important. And after you get through one through five, love your neighbor as yourself, which is a summary of the second five, which means they're all important. They all matter. You can't differentiate between between them and, and, and divide them as one being of greater importance than the other. So God's greatest command is love. His chief value is love. And before commissioning Peter to great work, Jesus' first question after the resurrection, is of the genuineness of Peter's love for him. We see that in John chapter 21, where three times he asks him, do you what? Because before you go and serve him, you better already love him, because if you go and serve him to earn love from him, then you will misrepresent him, because it won't be about God being seen, but it'll be about you earning from the people what you think you need to have to get from God what you've yet to receive. So the first question we should always ask in our service and in our ministry is not are we being effective in it or are we busy about it, but are we doing it out of a heart that actually loves and is devoted to God? See, God's chief value is love. His greatest command is love. And before you serve him, we are to have a love that is rooted within our hearts for him that motivates us to that service. So my question to you, church, is simple have you in indifference for, or in distraction or in whatever has come against you found yourself in a similar position to the church at Ephesus where you've become indifferent, losing your love for God and now doing religious ceremonies and works but with no actual passion, devotion, or meaning behind it? Are you giving God lip service? Are you compartmentalizing him in the areas of your life where religiously you are dutiful to him but you have no love for him? It's a new movie. It's just came out about an old movie. That's the way most good movies are made today. And they brought back an old scene in that movie. Uh, they didn't actually sing that song. They sang Great Balls of Fire. But in the first movie, they sang a song about losing that love and feeling. Remember that one? You've lost that love and feeling. Whoa, that. So you're like, this is weird. It is weird. That's the point. I'm trying to, I'm trying to help you embrace it. And for some of you, my, my concern as your pastor is that subtly over seasons of life, you've lost your desperation for Jesus. My personal chief value in my life 
is being a person that lives a life that is desperate for Jesus in every moment and every day. I want to live life as the kind of person who climbs trees to see him, pushes through crowds to touch him, and rips roofs off to get others to him. That's what desperation looks like. Zacchaeus was a wee man filled with sin. He had done much wrong in his community, and many people in the community knew of the wrong, but he, in the moment Jesus came by, knew that he had to have them. So what did he do? He didn't save face. He saved his behind, and he climbed up in a tree as a grown man because he knew if he could just see Jesus, there could maybe be hope for someone like him. There was a woman with a bleeding issue who was unclean, supposed to be separate from everyone. She had suffered, we're told, I think it's in Matthew's gospel, he puts the note, had suffered at the hands of physicians for years. Luke, who was a physician, left that detail out. (laughs) Didn't want that one in there. But in seeing Jesus, she pushes through the crowd, just knowing if she can get to the hem of his garment, everything would change. One of my favorite stories is about a woman who had a reputation in a past that wasn't so far in the past. Because a lot of us, you know, whenever we have a past in church, it's a lot further in our storytelling than it actually is. You ever notice that? Like, I've never met a man who's struggling with lust in the moment he used to. And by used to, it was like six hours ago. But They'll, they'll communicate it as, like, a long time ago. No, it wasn't. Like, be honest. Like, God knows everything. You're not shocking God at how recent your sin failure was whenever you come into the presence of God knowing that you need Him. Like, many of us, we, we start in grace, and then we slot into this works-based way of thinking that we think we've got to earn our way into the presence of God every Sunday, as if He doesn't want to meet with us corporately as the people of God and fill us and remind us of the gospel by the Spirit of God so that we be an empowered people in the community. I mean, you realize the disciples failed Jesus three days later. He's making breakfast with them on a seashore. And he's given them the keys to the kingdom after every single one of them, what, 24, 48, 72? Did I do the math right? 72 hours before-ish, take or give a few days, they all abandoned and ran away from Jesus. And he's like, the keys to the kingdom are in your hands. He's given it to them by the Spirit of God. Here's, Here's my point. My point is, for many of you, you don't live a life that is desperate for Jesus. And perhaps you're wondering, uh, maybe it was death, maybe it was a difficulty, maybe it was stress, maybe it was distraction. Somewhere in there, you lost your love for Jesus, and you're wondering, how do I get my hunger back? That takes me to one of my favorite books of the Bible. What's your favorite book of the Bible? Well, it starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation. I like every single one of them about the same. But I love the book of Hebrews, especially around Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12. Hebrews 11 gives us what's known as the Hall of Faith. The Hall of Faith is not filled with superhero people that did superhero things for God. It's filled with very broken people that God did very awesome things through. Moses was a murderer. He's in the Hall of Faith. Moses doubted that God could use him, so he wanted Aaron to speak for him. Moses is in the Hall of Faith. Moses is not in the hall of faith because he was more spiritual and more mighty than you. He's in the hall of faith because God chose to do great things through him. (laughs) So we get this entire chapter of people who God does amazing things through. And then the writer of Hebrews, many believe is Paul. Some dispute that. Then in chapter 12 says this. Look at it with me. Therefore, 
you who may think you're common, you who may think that you are not like them that were just mentioned in chapter 11, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, how do you get your hunger back when you've lost your hunger? Number one, remember and surround yourself with people who were or are desperate for Jesus. Get around people that are more excited than you tend to be about Jesus and make you a little bit uncomfortable with how excited they are. Uh, read about people who live lives that were desperate for Jesus. Can I give you some summer reading recommendations? One of my favorite biographies to read is about a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He lived 38 years on this earth. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. It's one of the greatest books on discipleship that has ever been written in my humble opinion. I think it's a lofty opinion. I think you should put it to, to memory and read it. He, listen to this, was snuck out just before World War II broke out in Germany, brought to the safety of the United States, felt conviction from God that he needed to be in Germany during the war, so he left the safety because the Germans were hunting all the Christians because they had to snuff out the Christian agenda and message because it was the biggest rival to the Nazi message that they were trying to preach and proclaim. So he sneaks back into Nazi Germany, and he works as a British spy and preacher in Germany throughout the entirety of the war until he's captured and in captivity leads many of the prisoners that he's in captivity with to Christ. One of the people that observed him in the gallows the moments before he was hung and died at 38, engaged to a woman he would never get to be married, having written this book on discipleship that he would never see its fame or notoriety rise in. But as he's standing in there, the, the person remembers in this biography that I read but remember seeing and observing him praying for courage, not for safety, in his final moments of life before he then hung and died a martyr's death at the age of 38. I love reading about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Why? Because he lived a life that was desperate for Jesus. I love reading about the Apostle John. You know why I love reading about the Apostle John? Because anyone that gets boiled to life and is still so desperate for Jesus that they won't stop talking about him, that motivates me to stay a little desperate for Jesus. I love reading about the Apostle Paul. You know why I love reading about the Apostle Paul? Not because the Apostle Paul was great or perfect or better than I am, but because you could arrest him and he would tell people about Jesus. You could shipwreck him and he would tell people about Jesus. He would get bit by a viper, throw it back into the fire. People begin to worship him and say, don't worship me, worship Jesus. I mean, how do you discourage a guy that in every scenario that life can throw at him, he's like, worship Jesus? I mean, we got the entire prison epistles that are written by Paul from prison, not in a cushy way of living, not in a good space, not in an easy space, but in difficulty. He's writing to his very last breath until he loses his head in Rome, encouraging churches to stay devoted to the word and the gospel in spite of persecution. When I read stories about people like that, I want to stay desperate for Jesus. I remember M.A. Thomas. He's one of the first missionaries in India. And whenever I read his biography and story about his family being burned alive right in front of him and his daughter's dying words being, Daddy, don't recant and don't take back the gospel of Jesus. Stay focused on the gospel. That makes me want to stay hungry and desperate for Jesus. Surround yourself with witnesses, with people that have gone before you and people that are presently around you who are just hungry and hell-bent on Jesus getting the glory in every avenue and aspect of their life because when you get around them, it's like a disease. It's, it's like something that we contract where we begin to get more contagious and hungry for Jesus than we were when we were not in their presence or being reminded by their witness. Remember and surround yourself with people who were are desperate for Jesus so the encouragement in Hebrews chapter 12, 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by this witness of people 
who are imperfect and failed and fell short, but by the grace of God and the Spirit of God, they made a difference and a legacy that we still read about. Since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, look at the application here. This is how you get your hunger back. Part two, look at the next part of the verse. You ditch what is permissible but not helpful. Look at the verse, though, before we put the point up. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us, here's what it says, strip off every weight that slows us down. Now put the point up there. Point two, ditch what is permissible but not helpful. See, most of us, if it's not blatantly sinful, we assume it's permissible. But that's not what the scripture teaches us. I love the text. Take everything or anything away that would slow you down from a full-hearted, all-out, blitzing, running, pursuing of Jesus with your life. That's desperation. It's a good thing, but it's not a God thing. It's a good thing, but it's quenching my hunger for the things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is Paul's encouragement to the church at Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 and 24, you say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of So not everything that you can do is good for you, good for the glory of God, the mission of God, the work of God that is meant to go through you into impacting others around you. And for some of you, you've got a lifestyle that's good for you, but it's not good for the witness of those that are looking for Christ in you, and it needs to be stripped away. I'm not here to play Holy Spirit. I don't know what it is, but there are some things that matter way more to you than they should. And you're you're on this thin line that's teetering between becoming lukewarm and complacent and desperate and white hot in pursuit of Jesus. And that thin line may not be sinful things, but it may be permissible things that just aren't helpful. Let me give you a list of my current ones that God's convicted me of. Apple decided randomly that they wanted to let me know about my screen time. I didn't ask for that rebuke. (laughs) I love playing Scrabble. I'm really good at it. I've won 27 games in a row against head-to-head competition in Scrabble. (laughs) I'm averaging five hours and 13 minutes a day on my phone. It's not helpful. It's not helpful. And see, here's what's most frustrating about this part of the sermon. You already know this stuff, but we don't do anything about it. I mean, I could have talked about social media, which is part of that five hours and whatever. And it's not that it's wrong, and in dosage it's not a bad thing, but it's just not helpful. It's just not helpful. Think about it. Right now in your life, what what are the things that are quenching your hunger for God? That are good things. They're not sinful, but they're just not helpful. They're permissible, but they're just not motivating and stirring your affection for Jesus. If you want to live desperate for Jesus, strip those things off. Get rid of them. Coming up this fall, there's a really not helpful thing that's going to come for a lot of you. It's called your love for football. You care way too much about people carrying pig flesh across the line. You're going to listen to pregame for two hours, postgame for two hours on the other end and spend the whole day all around it. Yet for many of you, 
that eight to ten hours of one day that you'll spend there, which will probably be preceded by you reading news and stories all week and analysis about how you're going to fix it and get better, which, let me be very clear, none of you are fixing any team that you're going to watch this year. None of you. If you're not on the field and if you're not a coach with a headset, you ain't fixing nothing. You're, you're just there consuming and paying and giving money. For some of you, it's going to take up way more of your time. You're going to weekly not read the Bible for more than 15 minutes a day, but you're going to give an hour plus a day thinking about that football team. It's just not helpful. So what's the encouragement? If you've lost your hunger and you want to be desperate for Jesus, which not all of us do, some of us, we want to be indifferent. We love lukewarmness. It's so much fun. We love sermons that tickle our ears, that tell us what we want to hear, but they don't call us to holiness and righteousness. They don't call us to full-out surrender for God. I mean, the preacher doesn't say anything that ever offends us, and we sit here week in and week out, and we can amen everything. That's problematic. That's called a country club, not a church. But nonetheless, look at what the text says. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Strip off everything that is not helpful in the next part and let us run. Uh, go back to B. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Actually, go back again. Put the whole thing up there. I'm missing a part. We talked about stripping off what is permissible but not profitable. Let us strip off everything that slows us down. Here we go. And maybe I read this and just mis- overlooked it. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. The NLT just doesn't have it, I guess. I don't know. The ESV then follows up, let us strip off everything with, and the sin that binds us. Okay? Check your pastor. Make sure he's reading you the Bible and not making it up. So let's strip off everything that's holding us back and the sin that binds us. What is that to say? If you want to get your hunger back, you got to see sin, kill sin. Had a missionary that went to China, sat down, and the rule of a missionary is whatever they put in front of you, you eat it. They put octopus that was still moving in front of him. He put it in his mouth and began to fight him. The woman looked at him and in broken English across the table said, you kill it, it kill you. Later he realized that if he had just tried to swallow it, which is one of the missionary tactics of getting food down when you're in a foreign country, just put it in your mouth, close your eyes, say the Lord's Prayer, swallow it, and just get through it. If he had swallowed it, the octopus would have choked him and killed him on the way down. So in order to eat octopus the way they did culturally, you have to chew it up and kill it or it will kill you. Same is true with sin. Either you kill your sin or your sin kills you. Right now, there's sins of commission and omission in your life. Commission, you know it's wrong and you're doing nothing about it. Omission, you don't know what's wrong and it's still sinful. I would submit to you that by the grace of God, it's our job when the Spirit brings us to see sin for what it is. It's our job to repent of that sin out of a love for God and out of a devotion to God. I want God more than I want sin. I want God more than I want my way of thinking or my way of living. So if He is God, I open my hands to God with the sin that is before me, knowing that I've been forgiven, knowing that I can repent. And as He continues to bring the sin that I'm not aware of in my life forward, I open-handedly repent and turn to God as my Savior and Lord and leader in it. Romans chapter six gives us a life lesson on this. Paul writes to this church and says, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Some of you, your hunger's being quenched because you have a sin habit that you just think is going to always be with you, or you don't think it's that really much of a big deal. So you just gossip, you slander, you uh, continue in the same cycle of lust and whatever it is that fills your attention and your time, and it quenches your hunger for God. My encouragement, Hebrews encouragement, see sin, kill sin, and then with that, 
after you see sin, you kill sin. After you ditch what's permissible but not helpful. After you're surrounding yourself with people who were or are desperate for Jesus, we then run. We don't walk. We run with a singular purpose. Look at the text, 1D, all the way to to verse 2. Go one more over. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. We're not running because we're hysterical. We're not running because the wrong party got in office. We're not running because we're in a political system that doesn't favor us. We are running because there's a purpose to our running, and that is that Jesus would get glory. This is what I'm here to ask today. My hope is that we would have in this house a culture and a people who would live lives that by all means necessary would live them for the fame and renown and glory of Jesus Christ. I just want him. I just want him to be known. I just want him to be seen. I just want to love him and walk with him and be led by him and be stirred in my affection for him. I just want to see him move. I don't want to read about a move of God. I want to live a move of God. And the Spirit of God has been given to us so that we could be the people of God and a witness in the nations that God has called us to be. And for me, it may look like Greenville today and Turkey tomorrow. It may look like being here today and Poland tomorrow. It may look like being here today and Ukraine tomorrow. But my answer to God is, I'm with you you. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? What should I prioritize? What resources should I use? Nothing is off limits. It's your life. It's for you. And I'm running after you with you being my focus. Why? Because he's the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross. So persecution doesn't slow us down. I've been studying the book of Acts, getting ready for our fall sermon series. And I love that the disciples, uh, Peter and John, they get out of the prison. They've been beaten and worn out to speak against Christ. They gather with the believers again. And when they gather, they don't pray, and God, would you hedge us in with your protection and keep those people? They pray for courage. Why? Because Jesus demonstrates courageousness for us by taking the cross on before we ever took up our cross to follow him. Disregarding its shame, curses the man that hangs from a cross. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. He's our Lord, our leader, and our example. We run with a singular purpose. Here's my question. Have you lost your hunger? Are you living in indifference? If so, church, repent. That's the normal posture of a Christian's life. God, I care more about these good things than I should, and they are quenching my hunger. I repent. God, I have allowed my affections for the world to become greater than my affections for you. I repent. Come on, what's your prayer? What does it look like? The altar's here. If you need prayer, we're here. If you need to come and pray as an act of surrender, it's here. You move as the Lord leads. Let's stand, let's sing, let's respond.